to uh, talking about chapter four, the follow-up. I watched the first one, but I didn't see the second one. And so the first one was just okay for me. It was tense. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, some of those movies get really intense, you know. I wasn't really a big fan of the first one, but everybody said it was really bad. The, but I really liked it. Yeah. I wanted to watch the second one. I did buddy film like the whole The first one was, yeah. was, was, I would say, like, my dad and I rate movies on a scale of one to five. And so the first one was a solid probably three and a half, you know. I mean, it wasn't like an outstanding movie. Like a four is a pretty, really, I mean, as a, as a really, really good movie. But a five is something that you could just watch over and over again, you know. It's just, just, even though that first one really got to me, like I was crying. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, the second one, as far as I understand, is just a separate story. It's, it's not even really related. It's just, right. Wow, that's cool when that happens. Yeah, I love when they like mow right beside the window. That's fun, but I guess they got to do it. So. Oh yeah, they're the guys. You know, didn't want to cause any problems. So, um, so we left off talking about chapter four. We kind of got into it on Monday, and we're gonna kind of pick up. Uh, I'm gonna do a brief re- recap because there's still quite a bit to talk about. In chapter four, and once again, chapter four is about the internal and external uh, organizational environments and corporate culture. We said that culture is a shared belief system, and so it doesn't matter uh, who you are or, or what you believe. When you come together with a group of people, you have a group of people that adopt a shared system of beliefs. And even if like you all are very opposed to your each other's viewpoints there's still some mutual agreement that happens, like we're gonna to work together and be together in this shared space. We're gonna respect each other's boundaries, things like that. Those are, those are shared beliefs that, that you know, people come together and adopt. Um, corporate culture, the corporation tries to put forth what it believes, what it wants its culture to be, uh, the things that it believes in and the ideas uh, and ways of being that it wants its employees to be. But it doesn't always become that because if you've ever been to a chain restaurant in different locations, you find that the culture is different at different locations or the, the atmosphere is different. And it could be just one employee that is really vibrant and really uh, makes that store or location have character that other places don't. And certain places that you go, everybody knows this one individual that works there. They love this one person. I used to work uh, in restaurants, and we'd have people show up just to talk to this one waitress or this one bartender that might be there because they were very uh, charismatic, and people liked that. So, and that individual was a part of the culture. And when that individual would leave, um, the, corpor- the culture would change. It would shift a little bit. You know, the underlying culture of this... Uh, I guess that restaurant theme that was there it still existed, but because we change people in and out, the culture changes over time a little bit. And so we talked about the learning outcomes. I'm not going to go over each one again, but basically looking at the internal and external organizational environments, um, looking at strengths and weaknesses, different types of organizational structures, looking at an organizational culture. So those are the, the brief bullet points. And so we started talking about these large, my macro 
uh, elements to the external environments. And once again, those are economic forces, technological forces, sociocultural forces, natural disaster and human-induced problems, and then, bless you, and then government and political forces. And no matter how prepared you are in business, you can't always fully anticipate all these different angles of what's going on, you know. And whatever industry you're in, you've got to, bless you again, you want to do it one more time? Okay. <laughs> good things come in threes, right? So it's all good. Um, but yeah, no matter what industry you're in, you want to kind of keep some awareness because as things change, all of these macro elements also change. And change occurs because humans change. We change as people. As we grow up, our viewpoints change. The, uh, the worldview we have changes, evolves over time. And because of that, as individuals, we change. Our environment, our physical environment changes uh, due to a bunch of different factors. But basically change is a constant. It's always going on in the internal and external uh, parts of an organization. And so you have to constantly keep your eye on these things and identify trends. We talked about um, Hispanic and Latino in retail. And if you didn't identify that this was going to be a thing uh, or this was going to be a unserved population in this area, yeah, you probably miss, you missed the boat or missed some opportunities there. Um, thinking about uh, Netflix, Blockbuster didn't think about technological change. They didn't think about, oh, one day, you know, they thought we're the world's leader in rental videos. We're always going to be the world leader. Nobody can take us over because we're the best. We're the first mover. Nobody can touch us. Well, then little Netflix came along with this disc rental service. And all of a sudden, very short amount of time later, Blockbuster is bankrupt. Nobody went to the store anymore. That was just not the cool thing to do anymore. And it was going to the video store was a big part of the culture when I was growing up. That was a thing to do. Like, you know, I would go rent two or three videos on a Friday night, you know, go hang out at my grandma's house, watch videos, eat pizza. That was a part of the culture in the 80s and 90s. But then you get to the, you know, the, the, across the millennium, and that culture changed. You know, nobody goes to the video store anymore. Um, I don't think outside of like the adult film industry, you can go rent. Like also, I guess Redbox, but that's the only thing you can do. I don't. I don't see. I don't see any other video like retail rental establishments. In fact, I think there's only one blockbuster left in the United States, and I think it's in Alaska. I think that's where I read it. And it's just because the people there they still use it. They still like it. So that's the last blockbuster in existence. So. But yeah, you've got to always keep mindful of these things. Uh, with a natural disaster, you want to keep, keep uh, up with, um, if you're in an area that's prone to tornadoes, for example, or hurricanes or flooding, those are things that you have to keep apprised of. If you're in a uh, country where you have a lot of political and governmental interference with regulations, those are things that you want to keep your eye on. So, and all this, of course, changes depending on the type of business that you're in. And so I've already talked about these different factors here. This is kind of where we left off on uh, Monday. And just to talk about this briefly, there's several different dimensions uh, to environmental complexity. And so just to speak outside of this graphic a little bit, you have to be able to assess how complex your environment is. If you live in a small town that doesn't, you know, that's got a pretty well-defined population, small population, and this population, uh, you know, needs your product or service, whatever it is, 
and you don't foresee any competitors really stepping into this market because it's so small. Nobody wants to come into this town. I mean, you know, you're in a pretty safe, you know, for the most part, like uh, non-complex environments. But if you live in a very vibrant city, lots of people, lots of turnover of people, people coming in and out, um, you know, imagine living in a city where you've got, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand people that are in and out of that city. I mean, there's just a ton of complexity to that, and traffic patterns could change, um, the political environment could change, uh, the population does change pretty often. People can, you know, people uh, relocate in and out. And so that being said, there's a lot more factors that you have to consider. If you're going to set up a shop on a corner somewhere, you want to know if the city is planning to change a traffic pattern or uh, if the city is planning to do some development close to your location or far away from your location because that could shift the amount of traffic that you have coming by your establishment. So, um, so you see that basic progression, you've got the low uncertainty, low to moderate uncertainty, high to moderate uncertainty, and then um, complex and unstable. And so these are the four different, you know, there's so many different ways you could chop this up, but this is just one way to display it to give you an idea. And so if you're in a low uncertainty area, meaning that you have a lot of certainty, that allows you to make decisions more easily because you can feel confident. Hey, I know what's going on in this market. I don't feel like there's a ton of competition. I don't feel like there's a ton of political issues or technological issues. I feel certain that if I make this decision, this will be the outcome. However, if you're in a highly complex, unstable market, yeah, imagine being like in a uh, an area that's industrialized, but it is war torn. There's 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 a threat of war or uh, violence. It's just unstable, you know. That it really creates a lot of uncertainty when it comes to business. And so you're thinking, if I place this order for thousands of dollars in inventory, you know, and I'm on the hook for it, what's the likelihood that my business is going to be alive in six months or a year? So these are things that you, you have to consider as an entrepreneur and as a manager. And so uh, I'm not gonna kind of belabor all this, but you can kind of see the progression of low uncertainty, low to moderate uncertainty, high to moderate uncertainty, and then complex and unstable. Number one, or the low uncertainty is the ideal. Um, and don't confuse that just because, the, don't, don't say that it's low uncertainty just because you want it to be certain. You wanna feel certain what you do really take an objective evaluation of what your market is uh, and be honest about uh, where you fall, you know, as a manager or as a decision maker or as an entrepreneur because uh, people will rationalize. They'll say, oh yeah, we're certain this, this, is, this is the path, everything's going to be fine. There's a high degree of certainty or a low amount of uncertainty and so we, can, we feel confident making these decisions. but people will rationalize that just to be able to get to the answer they want. And that being true, sometimes you say low uncertainty when it's actually high to moderate uncertainty. I see that all the time on Shark Tank where entrepreneurs will come in and they have a high degree of certainty. They're true believers. They believe in their product and service. And then the sharks will slap them with a taste of reality and say, oh, by the way, all these things that you're saying are certain are actually not certain. And so, uh, good way to get objective uh get an objective answer is to seek advice outside of your circle 
because people will reinforce, like if you've got a group of people that are working on a decision or idea or business, whatever it may be, um, people within your immediate circle uh, can be very supportive and may not be as knowledgeable about uncertainty. And so seeking advice from a third party outside of your circle can help you put things in perspective and be just be open to taking that feedback because uh, people want to see you do well. And so organizational design and structures, we're gonna get into talking about several different types of designs. Um, typically, I'm sure you guys are familiar with a hierarchy structure, which is where you have like a president or CEO at the top, then like some vice presidents and then some divisionals or managers and get on down to frontline workers. Um, there's a couple different types that they fall under. One of them is mechanistic and the other is organic. <coughs> Mechanistic is stable, low uncertainty, meaning that this is how it is, this is how we exist, and we're certain this is how this organization operates. It's a top-down hierarchy. The decisions come from the top and filter down to low, mid-level managers and then frontline workers. Narrow span of control. People have batches of people that they manage. Specialized tasks, because people uh, work on specific things that they do, like you have an accounting department, you have a marketing department, you have people doing uh, the, uh, I guess, pay, well, payrolls accounting, you have people doing uh, inventory control, that kind of stuff. Um, formal rules, yeah, most big organizations have a rules or, I guess, procedures <coughs> handbook. Vertical communication, up and down, you know, top boss says something, the middle and or you know, mid-level managers communicate that down to the frontline workers and then structured decision making so these are this is kind of the traditional mechanistic way of doing things then you have an organic which is unstable highly uncertain environment um, not to say that it's bad because a lot of i guess trendy startups kind of like this organic model where it's less rigid you know less traditional um, I guess, I guess less rigid. So it's a horizontal organization, I mean it's flat, it's not vertical as in, you know, boss, mid-level boss, frontline workers or managers. Instead of that, it's more horizontal where you have the bosses over here and he allows on these experts, you know, that he considers colleagues to work and do good work and he gives them a lot of autonomy and decision-making to bring this thing together. You see this in, in startups where, you know, there might be three to 10 people and they're all considered experts in their area. One of them's doing the marketing, one of them's doing the, the, pay, the payroll accounting stuff. The other person might be uh, working on development, whatever it may be. And they all have you know, a stake in what's going on. Flexible or few rules. How would it be if you went to work and the boss said, we don't care when you work. Doesn't matter what time of day you work or how long you work, as long as you get your work done. Well, how would you feel about that? So on Monday, you said, I'm just not going to show up on Monday. Tuesday, I'm going to work 10 hours. Wednesday, I'm going to work 12 hours. Thursday, I'm going to work 12 hours. Friday, I'm going to work a half day, and that'll be done. You know? And so what is that, 24, 34? That's about 40 hours, 38 hours, if you did that like that. So you still work close to a 40-hour work week, but you really just work basically three and a half days. You know, Some long days, but you got your work done. That's what counts. The reason I mention it, there's a novel... Uh, scheduling approach that several companies have adopted. It's called ROW, R-O-W-E, Results Only Work Environments. And basically they say 
we trust you to do good work. As long as you do your work and get your job done, I don't care what your schedule is. So that's a real sweet, if you can find something like that, grab a hold of it and run, run with it and take it. So, um, you know, I'll, and since I brought that up, I'll say this. I, I, I like money. Money's important. I mean, I, I really like money. I, I like the idea of having, you know, <laughs> retiring with a million bucks plus, you know. But money is not everything in life. It just isn't, you know. If, if, uh, if you have to pick between a high-paying job with no time versus a modest or decent-paying job with a lot more time and autonomy, I think plan B is the better choice. Just because, I mean, you can't get that time back. And that's just, that's my opinion. Other people have different opinions. I used to work with a guy at a car dealership. Uh, this was, uh, man, it's been almost 20 years ago, probably 15 years ago. And these were 60-hour work weeks, long weeks. You work six days a week, sometimes on Sunday. And, you know, you can make a decent living, very good money in the car business, but you have no time, very little <laughs> vacation time. And the vacations you did have... You didn't feel rested because you were so exhausted from working these long stretches of time. And it, it, it's, uh, but I left and one of my buddies that was there with me is still there, you know, and he's still doing it. And so, I mean, but he's moved up and he's making probably six figures. I know he's making six figures. And that's, you know, that's what he wanted to do. That's fine. But I just wanted to say that, you know, most people put pursuing money as the top priority when it comes to a career. But the quality of life is a big factor, you know, and so don't discount how valuable that is. If you're looking at a job that may pay not quite what you would prefer, but you have a better quality of life. Yeah, because I, I worked at Walmart uh, after the car business, after the restaurant business too, and the money was better. At that time, it was the best money I'd made, but the quality of life was horrible, you know, and so I said, I got to get away from that, do something different. So still on the organic. Two-way communications, it's more, uh, instead of top-down, it's, you know, with each other. We communicate openly and freely. Participatory decision-making, you know, vetting ideas and asking each other what we should do. Generalized shared tasks, everybody helps each other. And then a wide span of control. Um, everybody is kind of accountable for each other. So um, these are just basically the two big, uh, I guess, columns that the organizational designs fall into or talked about that so then we get these actual uh, type of structures and you can see in this graphic there are six different structures the functional divisional geographic matrix vertical team and virtual structure so we see that these developed in the mid 1800s and progressed to present day um, and just because virtual is number six doesn't mean we still don't have the functional, because we still do. Uh, that was just the latest evolution of business structure. And so um, you can see also that over time, we've gone from a mechanistic, uh, very rigid uh, structure to a more fluid, organic structure. And once again, it really depends on the organization, depends on how it's organized, who's involved, as to how this will be organized. and. You can have a really bad experience if you develop an organization and you don't have the type of structure correct. Um, you know, and you can have a bad experience if you start one way, but you don't evolve into another way because the times and the technology is saying you need to change. As an example, um, 
I've worked in offices uh, before where everybody had to be present on, you know, on campus, not this campus, but they had to be present at their desk, you know, a certain amount of time during the day. But there was a thing that came up about halfway through my, my tenure there and it said, you know, some people could telecommute. They could stay home. They could do their work from their computer at the house and save really time and money by doing that. And so um, that just, to go from a functional structure to look at a virtual uh, structure, to adopt some of that into your anatomy, it's very powerful, it's very good. So these organizations that are very functional based need to look at other ways that they could adjust their structure in order to be more functional with modern technology. And so just throwing that out there. And so let's kind of dive into each one of these a little bit more. So this is what we've been talking about functional. You have headquarters, the top decision makers, and then these different uh, aspects underneath, you know, research and development, production, marketing, accounting and finance. And if we drew this out a little bit more, each one of these, like there'd be a VP for research and development, a VP for productions, vice president for marketing, vice president for accounting and finance. And under the vice president, there'd be like assistants and then there'd be uh, divisional managers of production and or regional managers of production. And then you'd have uh, district managers of marketing. And then, so depending on the size of your, your company, you can really have layers and layers of management employees. And uh, it really can get complicated, you know. Uh, so this is a very traditional functional structure, and it works well in most every organization. Um, some, it doesn't though, you know, just, just because this, this fits a large chunk of any organization where you have some type of hierarchy doesn't mean it's appropriate for every organization. If you're working uh, <clears throat> with a, a group like a startup and you bring in a group of experts, more of a organic matrix type structure or a, a virtual uh, team might be a better fit. So. <clears throat> so this is what a divisional structure looks like. Um, this is many functional departments <laughs> grouped under a division head. Each functional group in a division has its own marketing, sales, accounting, manufacturing and production team. This structure resembles a product structure that also has profit centers. These smaller functional areas or departments can also be grouped by different markets, geographies, product services, or whatever is required by the company's business. So divisional structure. And I'm gonna pull this up real quick just because uh, I thought of it while I was looking at this. One second. Has anybody ever looked at the graphic of the companies that Walt Disney owns? The product? Um, Is it? It's a graphic that shows all the other companies that Disney owns. Let's see if I can blow this up. I don't know how much bigger I can get it. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, there you go. So I'm going to zoom in a little bit. Yeah, if I can, that's a little too much. Uh, let's see if I can. Yeah, here we go. So let's back off just a little bit. This 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 thing is tremendous. I mean, it's just massive. You can't even. Yeah, I can't even get it all on one. So take some time when you get home just to play with this. But this is a graphic that was updated a year or two ago, and it shows all the companies that Disney, Disney owns. And so you got over here in this big bubble, Marvel and Marvel Studios, but in each one of those, there's other things. There's Marvel Toys, which is up here in this brown uh, circle. There's uh, Marvel International Character Holdings, 
There's Marvel Properties. Uh, down here, there's Marvel Music. So they have a studio that creates music for Marvel movies, right? Then over here, we'll skip to, skip to Marvel, go over here to Fox. They just bought Fox. And they've got FX. They've got Fox Star uh, Studios. They've got Fox Sports. Um, they've got Sky, Sky TV. They've got Nat Geo, National Geographic. So, yeah, keep going. It just gets crazier. Um, they've got Star Wars. Uh, I don't know if, yeah. So Walt Disney Pictures is just that little bubble right there, yeah. And then, yeah, Walt Disney Parks, all that good stuff. Um, Disney Corporate, which is the this is the, the epicenter, yeah. Disneyland, that's over in California. Disney Music Group. Disney ABC Television, Disney Theater Group. Yeah, I know, right? It just, yeah, it just keeps going. Look at this, yeah. Disney Direct to Consumer and International, Steamboat Ventures, Disney Studio Services, ESPN. I mean, it is, and I've looked at this several times now, and I still am just blown away by how insanely, like, just the insanity of how much it Disney owns. And, I mean, it's just, and look how they've got it organized. They've got it organized, color-coded by film, television, music, gaming, finance, theater, consumer goods, property and parks, publishing, and digital miscellaneous. Wow. I mean, it is just a corporate conglomerate. It is huge. They've got Movies Anywhere. I didn't realize <laughs> Disney owned Movies Anywhere. That's awesome. I actually use that. They got GoPro. Do they, do they, do they invest in that, I guess, or own a piece of that? Yeah. So and these are all little ventures. These are investments they've made. Wow. It's just, yeah, just... Go check this out when you have some time and just go through it. If you've got an iPad, pull it up on iPad because it really looks sharp on iPad and you can kind of dive into each one of these and look at it. What's that? The Hulk. The Hulk, yeah. Well, that that graphic really just shows you uh, – what's that? How strong they are. Well, it shows you how strong they are, but it's, it's a great illustration of a divisional structure because each one of those bubbles is a division of Disney, and each one of them has its own – you know, like, it's, I can't even imagine if you had a book of the employees at Disney and all the hierarchy that they have, it would look crazy. It would be great to see it rendered like as a 3D uh, VR where you can just look at all the, the people that work at Disney. It's just, I mean, blow your mind. So, uh, But that's a great illustration of a divisional structure. This is a networked team structure, and you can see it's very different from a functional or divisional. This is uh, basically where you have people working in separate bubbles that are connected to other people based on need. And so um, you might have an individual over here doing you know, general assembly and there's three or four people that connect to that person or a group. And so uh, really a different take on a traditional functional or divisional uh, setup. But like I said, the reason why this exists is because they thought this was a better uh, solution than to have a traditional structure. Also, this is a virtual structure, um, editorial team, new book product, development, and committee. And so this is a group of people who are coming together to do editing on a new book. And they've got all these other four groups or individuals that are coming together to create this product, whatever, your new book. And so... Um, you can do this as an individual. You can write a book and work on uh, getting somebody to help you with sales or marketing. You can get a, somebody to do a design cover for you. 
Um, you can talk to a service about delivery and service, and then technical development if you want to add any uh, other elements to it. So, I mean, it's really interesting how all this stuff comes together virtually. Has anybody ever worked with anybody overseas on anything? I, I actually had a book project I was working on, and I, I was like looking for cover designers, and I found one that lives in Germany, and I, I talked to her, and um, she did a sample for me, but that, that project didn't take off. But I had, I've had several others that we did you know, actually come up with and made work, so cool stuff. All right. We're getting close to talking about internal environments. And so uh, we talked about the external, those big five macro things we talked about. Uh, and now let's talk a little bit about getting into the actual nuts and bolts of internal. So basically, internally, the open system model, this is what uh, the function of the organization is, is to basically transform inputs into outputs. That's why organizations exist. We're going to take information and create new information, or we're going to take raw materials and make something. You know, if you if you produce cutting boards, you take wood, you cut it into boards, polish it up, you know, engrave it, whatever, and that is your output. If you make soap, you take those ingredients and essence and uh, spices or whatever it is that you put in it, and create that soap and create that output. And so. In inputs are those resources, raw materials, technologies, ideas, peoples, students, etc. taken from the environment. Yes, we take students from the environment. <laughs> Organizational subsystems are the thoroughputs and processes transform inputs through education, manufacturing, and process. This is the actual works, the, thor uh, the throughputs. This is what we do to, you know, make whatever we're making, whatever it's a product or service. And then the output is the results from the throughputs phase. Um, produce products, services, trained, uh, certified, degreed, professional people, etc. And so as an example, um, Rice University put out this book for open, from OpenStax for this course, and I took that input, that raw material, the book itself, and I transformed it into a lecture series, and I transformed it into a Moodle course shell in order to use it for my students to, to benefit from. And so that's a very simple example of taking a material and transforming it. Uh, and since it is an open resource that uh, is basically, we just have to attribute it like we have on this slide, attributed copyright Rice University, um, it's an open license. Anyway, uh, that's just one example of transforming. If I took uh, some vegetables this afternoon, you know, if I went to the farmer's market, got some vegetables, took those, transformed it into some type of vegetable soup, or whatever it may be, some stir fry, that, and then you know, provided it to my kids for supper. That is an input, a throughput, and an output. And so we do this in our ordinary lives, you know, without outside of work as well. Uh, but basically, the reason for business is to transform those inputs and outputs. We've talked about the external environment. I'm going to get more internal. Once again, those <coughs> external forces: economic, political, technological, sociocultural, and then natural disaster and um, human related, but then the organizational internal environment, you've got formal and informal subsystems. The formal systems are leadership, strategy, management, goals, marketing, operations, technology, and structure. And then the informal subsystems are managers, culture, norms, relationships, politics, and leadership. So several different things happening 
internally, and we'll dive into that a little bit more. This is kind of just an overview. Any questions on anything so far? I know I'm kind of just talking. I want to make sure you guys are with me. You okay? I know it's Wednesday. It's hump day. So, all right. So, along with this internal um, internal discussion, there's this uh, McKinsey 7S model. This model talks about shared values and what it means to have those shared values. This is uh, getting to talking about culture. Um, so with that, we have things of talking about strategy, structure, systems, style, staff, and skills. These things come together in order to form the shared values that we have. And every organization is unique because people are unique individuals that have unique perspectives, backgrounds, and experiences uh, in education. So uh, when we come together with a unique group of people, we have a unique shared value system. Even if it's uh, within a corporate structure that they want us to have, you know, a certain way of acting and being. You know, I like to pick on Chick-fil-A. I love Chick-fil-A. And when you go to Chick-fil-A, you get very consistent service, right? My pleasure, right? I've got, in fact, I've got a student in another class that works at Chick-fil-A. And um, they have a shared belief system at Chick-fil-A or a shared culture that they, they have. But each individual Chick-fil-A location is still a unique uh, enterprise because of the individuals that work there that, that shift that culture just a little bit. You might have some people at one location that are pranksters. Another culture might be very strict, very stern because the manager is very you know dominating. Um, you might have another one that uh, you know is very um, empathetic and they have a family-like environment. You know everybody kind of helps each other. You know inside and outside of work. So. You know, and then you might have one that's not very family-like, where everybody just comes to work. They don't really know their coworkers very well, and they don't really care. So, yeah, these are some subtle differences that you see across the spectrum. And so, this is a this is the graphic I wanted to get to today, and we'll kind of end the conversation on this one because this really tells the story of the chapter with regard to internal and external. So you see these internal and external factors. SWOT analysis talks about strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. A SWOT is a great tool. Um, you can use this within a business or you can use it as an individual. And just to give you kind of a brief SWOT, um, you way, way I do it, you can, just to do a very simple one, you can have strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And strengths and weaknesses are internal and opportunities and threats are external. So, and just one, two, three. So let's pick a company just to identify that everybody knows. So, uh, I got you. Let's do Netflix. Everybody knows Netflix, right? Yeah. So what makes Netflix strong? Um, they got content. Okay. What else makes Netflix strong? They were first. They're convenient. What makes them weak? Uh, the price. Yeah, they are a little high compared to some other. Like Hulu's six bucks um, for my family, and Netflix is uh, for my family is like sixteen. So that's a big difference, you know. So price makes them weak. What else makes them weak? I'm gonna say content is a strength and a weakness. Yeah. Cause some of the stuff up there is garbage, you know, right? Yeah. 
I mean, there's probably, for me, less than 10% good content that I really want to watch on Netflix for me personally. <laughs> Some people watch a lot of B-movies and stuff on Netflix. I don't, you know. What else is a weakness for Netflix? Bless you. Oh, man, I didn't mean to do that to you. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My wife will be so mad when she might do that. What's up? I feel like they're uh-huh. Like, so it's disorganized? Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Uh, like just scrolling, yeah, just scrolling through all the movies. They should redo the user experience because, like, it depends on what device you're on. Like, sometimes you scroll and then sometimes you have to scroll over. And, yeah. like, it feels like the same titles are repeating, you know. And I feel like I'm only seeing a small percentage of what they have available, you know. And like another weakness for me is in some of the categories, there's not good selection. Like I like sci-fi movies and I like fantasy and so on. And there's, for me, there's not a lot of good content there. Bless you. Okay, so what is a Netflix opportunity? What do you think is their opportunity? I'm gonna put more uh, original content because that's what people respond to. You know, Netflix is successful for a lot of reasons, but original content is a big reason why they're successful. So they have to keep pushing that button, you know, original content that people, like, think about HBO. When I was a kid, growing up HBO, it was cool, but it wasn't what it was until, like, Game of Thrones came along, right? And now, like, boom, everybody wants to watch HBO. Uh, and so HBO realized, you know, we lost Game of Thrones, so we gotta get something back that's gonna replace that, because I read, I don't know if it's true or not, that HBO lost about a third of their subscribers after Game of Thrones ended, because that's what people were dialed into, so. Original content's big. What's another opportunity for Netflix? New shows. Well, that's original content, so, yeah. What else? Opportunities. How about, um, well, how about global? Because I don't think they're everywhere yet. I mean, there are a lot of places, but there's other territories they could get into. What else? Maybe other services. I don't know what that would be. Other services. Also, like the captions, they only have it in like two languages. Yeah. Okay, so, so translation. Okay, I like that. So, what's the threats? Competition, big time. Yeah, uh, there's two that I want to get this fall Apple TV Plus is going to be five bucks, and Disney Plus is going to be six bucks, I think, or seven, yeah, six bucks. What's that? I can't wait for that one. Yeah, Disney that's, Plus. That's what I always used to watch on. I used to watch the Marvel movies. Right. On Netflix. But now because Disney's creating their own thing, right. they're stingy on that. Yeah. Because they're like, we're going to put it on right. their own content now, or like their own platform to show it on. Right. I got to like, I, have nothing to watch on so my, I still have satellite because I live out in the country and I don't have any other option, but I pay 77 a month for that, but I'm going to drop down to like the very basic, basic satellites, like 25 bucks a month. Because uh, I've got tons of streaming stuff that I watch on my phone, you know. There's a lot of great free streaming stuff. Does anybody use Pluto? It's a free yeah. app, Pluto. Mm -hmm. It's a great, yeah, check this app out. I highly recommend it. Yeah, you can get Pluto on fire. Yeah, it's, I use Pluto every day. It's got like probably 100 channels that are free to watch. And it's, it's like having satellite on your phone. It's great, I love it. What else is a threat? So, yeah. Somebody could come up with something better than Netflix. I don't know what they mean, you know. So, what else is a threat? 
Here's one the economy. Like, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's something that we always have to keep our eye on, like those external things we talked about. Like, it could be that we could have a massive recession and people just look at things that got to go, and Netflix could take a hit. They, I mean, if, if people are losing their jobs, at the, in 2008, when the recession was at its peak, we were losing a million jobs a month. I mean, so people look at that thing, man, you know, I need gas money, I got to eat. Some of the stuff's got to go for a while. So Netflix could see, you know, a 10 to 20% pullback on subscribers. Uh, and so that's, that's a threat. So this is a very brief SWOT analysis. And you can actually go in and really uh, break down each one of these even further and add more to it. A really in-depth SWOT analysis would have just tons and tons of each one of these, as many as you could think of. And then they would elaborate in detail on each one of these. And you would, that's how you do a, okay, a formal involved SWOT analysis. So that is looking at the external factors, the internal, what leadership do we have that helps us, what skills and expertise in our performance history. All that from, uh, comes together into this uh, structure right here. And I'm going to pause it for today, and we'll wrap up this structure on Friday. But if you guys have any questions about the homework, go ahead and start working on that. Let me know if you need anything. I sent out an email yesterday with some good content in there. Uh, please check that out. And I'll be sending out another one today with just some uh, events that are coming up. The safety fair is coming up um, next Wednesday. So check that out. We also have um, – I sent out, I sent out an email about – we have a – um, event that we're hosting, our division is hosting on October 2nd. It's a interview workshop and I'm interviewing um, a lady named Patricia Delamotte. She's the business owner of uh, Once Upon a Child and she's a student. Uh, it's going to be a one hour interview. It's going to take place on Wednesday, October 2nd. If you would prefer to go to that versus this class, you can go to either or and I'll have an attendance roster there. You can sign your name. Um, but I would prefer you to go to that event and I'll remind you the Monday before because I want you guys to see this interview. It's going to be awesome. If you have a conflict, though, like if you have a, a job or a class and you can't go, we're still going to hold class that day. But I would prefer you to go to the 11 o'clock session if you can. Um, it's going to be a Walnut 101. I will remind you of this, and I'm going to send out an email about it in a minute. But uh, it's going to be awesome. She has a lot of experience in management and leadership. She's a female entrepreneur, been doing it for 20 years. Uh, just really, really going to be a good interview. So, all right, guys, I appreciate you. I will see you on Friday. Have a safe week. Talk to you soon.